We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of the Psalter, Psalm 22. For our Lord's Supper meditation, we will return to covenants. Lord willing, next week, we'll, or next week, next time, we'll start the covenant of redemption. Uh, but tonight, we'll look at Psalm 22. It plays an important role in the various passages we've seen uh, in Mark 15. So Psalm 22, we'll look at the entire chapter this evening. I'll begin reading at verse 1. And verse 1 begins at the superscript in Hebrew. So verse 1 is to the chief musician. To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you did not do not hear. In the night season, and I'm not silent. You are holy and throned in the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's hurt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. And you've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him, but we recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And we're thankful, oh God, for the promises in your word that teach us these very things. We confess, oh God, so often your people go through seasons of darkness and seasons of silence where it seems as if you are far away. It seems as if you do not hear and do not listen. We ask how long, oh Lord, and where are you in the trying times that we endure? But we're thankful, oh God, that we can press in by faith. And if we suffer, let us pray. May we pray to you even now. May we come before you now. May we press in in faith and in trust in your promises and what they say. And thank you, O God, that you delivered us. You delivered us in Christ. You delivered us from death in the Lord. 
and you walk with us each and every day as well. And that you've delivered us from many things that we've endured in the past and you will deliver us in the future. And so we pray, oh God, that we are people because you're a God who answers prayer, because you're a God who redeems. We pray that we would be a people that praises. We would be a people that uh, lifts your name high, recognizing who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf, a unique suffering that he had the wrath of God poured out upon him. But we're thankful, oh God, that you walk with us during our trials as well. And though we suffer, though we go through battles and sorrows and toiling in this lower world, thank you, O oh God, that we shall be brought into the new heavens and new earth, that we are making our way to that celestial city, and we shall sing with the saints of heaven when we shall see them, and we shall see Christ as he is on that day. So in that time, O oh God, in the meantime, may you encourage our hearts with the Psalms, may you encourage our hearts with all of your word as they teach us about who you are and what you've done. So even as we lament, O oh God, may you turn our lamenting to praise, and may you do so by your word. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Psalm 22 certainly is a famous psalm that a lot of people ought to know, and certainly it is plays an important role in the crucifixion and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is about the word psalm, it typically means praise. But a lot of the psalms are very sorrowful. A lot of the psalms start off with lament. A lot of the psalms start off with crying out to God most high. But thankfully, even in those psalms of lament, there's usually a turn to praise. There's usually a clinging to the promises of God Almighty, clinging to a God who answers prayer. And certainly we see this here in Psalm 22. It is certainly a messianic psalm. It is on the lips of David. It is on the lips of the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we can't glean some things for the people of God as well in the Christian life. And so Psalm 22 certainly is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm of lament, but it does turn to praise in verse 22. And the clear problem is really a human problem that we see in Psalm 22 is when God is silent. You see, sometimes we sense as if God is not near. There's this sense that God is not close. And this is something that plagues all of God's people, even the redeemed, even the saved, even those who live in this lower world. We go through times where it seems that God is far from us. And perhaps we cry out like David does in verses one and two. Many cry out, where are you, O God? We don't always feel his nearness. We don't always feel his closeness. We don't always feel like he answers our prayers. But that's why we must press in by faith press in and trust in the promises that God has given in his word. Because it doesn't always matter how we feel, does it? I'm not saying we're not disembodied spirits. I'm not saying we don't have emotions. But sometimes our emotions can be play tricks on us. That's why we need to cling to what God has said in his word. Cling to the promises of what God mentions in his scriptures. And so, in Psalm 22, in the wake of God's sensible absence... The psalmist can rely upon a God who answered and will answer prayer. So it's a sensible absence of God. The psalmist presses in by faith. The promise presses in, the psalmist presses in in trust as he recalls what God has done and it gives him confidence that God will answer in the future. So we'll look at this prayer under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the prayer in silence, verses 1 through 21. Then secondly, we'll see the loud praise in deliverance, verses 22 through 31. So a prayer in silence, verses 1 through 21, and then the loud prayer of deliverance, a praise of deliverance in verses 22 
through 31. So let's first look at the prayer in silence in verses 1 through 21. And there are three sections. And there is this I-thou interchange that goes on uh, in verses 1 through 21. And they get more and more intense as the verses unfold. We see the eyes increase in length, the, the suffering that he endures. But we see the thous as he calls upon God in those moments. We see a, an increase in urgency highlighting the difficult situation that David is in. Now, it is an individual lament that we don't know necessarily the historical setting, but clearly David is in great distress. And there are many times that David in his life is in great distress, but we don't know necessarily what is going on here in Psalm 22. So you, but even though it's individual, it was still used in the assembly of the Lord. It was still used amongst the congregation of the people. It was something that the people could relate to. The people could grasp onto and sing the praises of their God and even the prayer to their God using Psalm 22. And so we see the cry of dereliction, verse, 20, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. He cries daily. He cries perpetually. He cries often. And yet it seems that God is not answering his prayers. It seems that God is not close to him. And the word here for God is my El. That is referring certainly to the, the God of Israel. Certainly, uh, certainly it's used even in connection with Yahweh. In any case, he's crying out to the one who is mighty. The one who is powerful. And yet he doesn't know where he is. And you see, there is this kind of interchange between theology and experience. Notice he still cries out in faith, my God, my God, not thou God, thou God, but my God, my God, where are you? We know who God is. We can read A.W. Pink and read about his attributes. We can read in his word that our God is mighty and strong. Yet experience teaches us sometimes that we cry out just the same. My God, my God, why have you been so far from me? Again, it is still a cry of faith. Kidner says it is not a lapse of faith, nor a broken relationship, but a cry of disorientation. As God's familiar, protective presence is withdrawn and the enemy closes in. So it certainly is one who's pressing in by faith in the promises of God. My God, my God, where are you? And again, God, it seems as if God doesn't hear daily. So it highlights the seriousness of the concern I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. Where are you? Oh, my God. Why do you not listen to my cries and incline your ear to me? Now, this certainly is in contrast with Psalm 16. There's much more confidence in Psalm 16. There are certain types of Psalms. There are hymns of confidence, trusting in God, this great exuberance, this great faith that we might say, the what modern Christianity might say is great faith, confidence in God. But here in Psalm 22, it seems as if that faith is gone, even though it is still a cry of faith, but not quite the same confidence. But one thing that the psalmist does, again, that interchange, is as he cries out, he still talks to himself about who God is. He has to remind himself of the promises of God. And again, there's that interchange. God, you don't hear, but... Verse three, you are holy. You're the one who is set apart. You're the one who's enthroned in the praises of Israel. 
It's perhaps recalling God and his salvation, highlighting God who is king unlike any other. Perhaps even too, you consider Psalm 2, that how God sits in the heavens, how God uh, understands and sees the nations raging and plotting vain things. God is the one who laughs. God is the one who shall distress them in his deep displeasure. God is the one who shall set up his Messiah and his anointed. And so he is relying on those promises. He's recalling who God is. He is recalling what God has done. You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. Our fathers looked to you. Words repeated. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Again, we need to recall all that God does. We need to remind ourselves often of who he is. That's why I need to be in his word often. To recall all the things that he has done for Israel. All the things that he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the things that he does for his church. Especially when we are in times of great despair. But also as well when we're in times of despair. It's good to recall all the good things God has done in our life. It's good to count our blessings one by one and be reminded of those things that he has given to us. And so that's what he is doing here. They called. The the patriarchs called upon you and you answered. The patriarchs asked and you delivered. The patriarchs trusted and were not ashamed. What's interesting, that language of not being ashamed does have some salvific overtones in Isaiah 49, 23. And certainly Isaiah in Isaiah 49 is anticipating the exile, anticipating the time where the people of Israel would be kicked out of their land. They would be wandering, a wandering people, so to speak. And thankfully, Psalm 40 or Isaiah 49 in verse 23 is right after that second servant song that speaks about the one who would conquer, speaks about the mighty Lord, speaks about the servant who would come. But in that, he talks about how uh, talks about this language of those not put to shame, reviled, not ridiculed, not reviled, not ridiculed, because God answered. So there is that salvific overtone. They shall not be ashamed. But we see in verses 6 through 11, shame is exactly what the psalmist endures here. We see the scorn of what he faces, as Davis says. Verses 1 and 2, we see the silence. In verses 6 through 8, we see the scorn. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am but nothing before men. How is it or what is that we start to see, I guess, a greater picture of the, the reason for dereliction? It's because people around him taunt him people around him mock him people around him shame him and perhaps we might be prone to think that it's heathen prone to think it's the pagans prone to think it's the nations around israel but notice the name of the lord is on the lips of these mockers he trusted in the lord let him rescue him the implication is it's the assembly of israel that's mocking him it's the so-called people of god that are mocking him. Isn't this what is happens with our Lord Jesus Christ? This is the language we see in 1529 of, of Mark's gospel. How they wag their heads. They shake their heads and wave their fingers. Ah, ha! 
You who said you destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it, save yourself. Taunting, mocking, reviling that comes from whom? Israel. Comes from the so-called people of God who mock him. They mock our Lord. They mocked the greater David, and they mocked the first David as well. All those who see me ridicule me. They taunt, shoot out their lips, shake their head, trust in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But again, we come to this comfort, verses 9 through 11. And notice he reminds himself of God's guidance throughout all of his life. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me to trust while on my mother's breast while I was young. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. God has walked with him all the days of his life. And he takes great comfort in that, in the scorn that he faces from the assembly of the people. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. What's interesting when he says, you've been my God, verse 10, that's the same language that we see in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not as though God has forsaken him. And he's reminding himself of that very thing. You have been my God. Now be not far from me. And even that language of verse 11 is what we also see in verse 1. Why are you so far from helping me? Be not far from me me he prays in his plight he prays and reminds himself as he prays about the promises of god of who god is and how he's been with him his entire life but the problems continue verse 12 surrounding enemies silence scorn and surrounding enemies and this time it's not just verbal punishment verbal ridicule but physical Many bulls, verse 12, imagery of the enemy. Verse, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Bashan was the place with the fattest and largest bulls, highlighting the form- uh, how formidable perhaps the enemy is here. Now, I've never you know, waltzed into a bull's territory, but I surmise I do not want to do that very thing. I remember years ago, we were visiting some friends and we went out for a walk with their dog. It wasn't a bull, but there were some donkeys, two donkeys that were in their pen. And, you know, you're not supposed to go and taunt the animals, right? Well, the dog decided to run into their pen. And guess what? The donkeys chased that dog, that dog out and trampled the dog. Just, the dog's fine. The dog was okay. But you don't, mess with, you don't mess with donkeys and you don't mess with bulls. And also, I don't think you mess with lions either. That's why I'm thankful at the zoo. I can go see the lion and then I can just, you know, smile at it and wave at it. And there's a couple fences in between me and it. I've also heard one way to kill a lion is wrap a shirt around your arm and shove it down its throat. But I don't want to try it. So that's just a uh, that's an old wives tale, I guess. But uh, don't want to try that. But I'm thankful for those things. So you see the imagery that is going on here. They gape at me. With their mouths. They've encircled me like a raging and roaring lion. And then verse 16, jumping down, I'll come back to verse 14, but verse 16. Notice we see they're like dogs, and these are not man's best friend. 
They're perhaps more like the African dogs that you see in Africa that you don't want to go pet. Ones who scavenge, ones who are vicious, ones who will not at you. And so, and that's even the language that we perhaps see there. Notice, for dogs have surrounded me. This is all imagery to refer to people. They have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet, and they count all my bones. Now, perhaps the image there with the piercing could be the idea of dogs gnawing. Dogs gnawing so much that they do what? Expose the bones. That's the language that you see right there. They gnaw and count all my bones. This person is a bag of bones. They're a bag of bones because dogs gnaw, but also they're a bag of bones because they have no food. Uh, he has no food in him. He is simply wasting away. And so as he wastes away and as the dogs gnaw at him, they look and stare. They count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Well, he's going to die anyway. Let's just take his garments. And isn't this what happens to our Lord? John is explicit with this in John 19. We saw this certainly in Mark's gospel as well. As they cast lots for his clothing. He's dead and dying. Let's take his garments instead and see how much we can get for it. Let's have a trophy for us. Yeah, man is desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Man is desperately wicked. And even kicking someone, not just kicking someone when they're down, but mutilating someone when they are down. So they are encircled. But notice his state, verse 14 and 15. I am poured out like water. That is, he's formless. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's the language of being formless. There's nothing to hold him up. You can you know, put your hands through him and there's, there's no substance to grab. That is there. His heart melts like wax and is melted within me. There's nothingness that is there. He has no strength. He is weak. My, drink, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. When it dries up, you can bust it easily. My tongue clings to my jaws. And he's also uh, coming to death. He's formless. He is weak. He is dying. You brought me to the dust of death. And perhaps this is why Davis says it's looking ahead to another David. David is looking beyond himself. David is enduring, certainly enduring something. We must recognize that. He's also looking ahead to somebody else as well. The one who really would pass through death. So he's going through a lot, isn't he? And going through a lot would be an understatement when it comes to the suffering that the psalmist is enduring in Psalm 22. But notice, he again comes to this reminder and prayer for deliverance. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. Same word in verse 11, same word in verse 1. He says it three times. Why are you far from me? Be not far from me. Be not far from me, O God. Be not far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Again, my God, my strength, the one who lifts me up and carries me. Again, he's pressing in by faith. He's pressing in in trust. Sometimes the one who has the greatest faith isn't the one who skips and jumps all the way to church. Maybe the one who, who slowly walks in with a bit of a drudge. They perhaps are walking in downcast and heavy laden. 
but they cannot stay away from the household of God. They cannot stay away from praying to God Almighty. They cannot stay away from pressing into God in faith. Faith isn't some fuzzy feeling, dear brethren. It's believing the promises of God. It's accepting, resting, and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether I feel good about that or not, it doesn't change the fact that that is absolutely true. And so he presses in by faith. Oh, my God. Oh, my strength. Hasten to help me. Deliver me from these things. But then it's not wrong to ask God to deliver us from certain things. It's not wrong to do that. Now, if God does not and we have to endure a certain trial, we trust him in that. I think 2 Thessalonians 3 is are very helpful here. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul is asking them to pray for the word of God, but he also says, pray for us, that we might be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men, for not all have faith. That's legit. Pray for deliverance. Pray for being taken away out of the circumstance. But, he says in verse 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. We pray for deliverance, but if God does not, then we know that he still remains to be faithful. But we will see. He does answer in Psalm 22. But again, he brings the language of the dog and the beast and the bull. My precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And again, it reverses the order of the enemies that are mentioned there. It was, I guess, cow or bull or oxen to lion, then to dog, dog, lion, oxen in his prayer of a request for deliverance. God needs to be his strength because he has a bag of bones and needs someone to lift him up. And notice verse 21, you answered me. Isn't that how God works most of the time? <laughs> we pray and he answers. And sometimes it's just like that. You don't always see it happening or coming. Boom, there it is. Oh, And God answers. Doesn't say how, but it just says God answered his prayer. And what's interesting is the same word that we see in verse 2. I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And here we see a God who hears. A God who answers, a God who heard his cry, you have answered me. And it shows it's not as though God had actually abandoned him, but it's that sensible evidence that God is with him. God has answered his prayer. You have answered me. Now, brethren, obviously, this finds fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we looked at a lot this morning. We looked at a lot. The past couple of weeks, Psalm 15 or uh, Mark 15 with the crucifixion of our Lord. And again, I tried to highlight this morning. It's not divine abandonment. That song where it says the father turned his face away. Inaccurate. Because again, it's the father, the son and the spirit bringing about the one who is the son who in his human nature from death to life. God is not absent from the cross, but bringing about salvation with that very cross. And what's interesting, divine abandonment isn't even in Psalm 22. It's a sense that God is not there. But God obviously is with his people. He cries out and God has answered. What Psalm 
22 used in the crucifixion highlights for us is the agony and suffering that our Savior goes through. And even as we saw, it's applied even greater with that idea of judgment being poured out upon Christ with that image of darkness right before the, uh, he cries that, uh, dere, uh, that dereliction. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even again, in that language, my God, my God, it is Christ in resolve to do what God has called him to do, to die upon that tree, that in dying we might have life. He goes with resolve. He goes with power. He even goes to that cross, but it is a great cry of agony and suffering, but it is how God answers the prayers to save sinners from their sins. Craigie says, the sufferer of Psalm 22 is a human being. Jesus is fully man, experiencing the terror of mortality in the absence of God and the presence of his enemies. And again, it's the second per it's it's the, the human nature of the second person who suffers on that tree. So Christ cries out in trust. I need to say there, Christ Jesus is not the first Christian. He does not have faith like you and I do, but he trusts in the you know the plan that the Father has for him and goes in that way. But it's not a saving faith, but he's crying out, understanding he's going to go and die according to the promise according to the plan of God almighty. So it does refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do think there can't be application for the people of God. If we're careful, it's okay to recognize that God's people go through times like this very thing. Davis says it's okay. So I think it's okay. Other psalmists say other commentators say it's okay. So I think it is okay. Now, certainly, again, Christ is where the fulfillment is. But even as we walk this world, dear brethren, don't we go through suffering? Don't we go through times where God is silent towards his people and seems as if he is not near? I think sometimes we think God has abandoned us in our deepest, darkest trials. That's why we need to remind ourselves of what he has done in the past, scripturally, and what he has done in our own life as well. Again, there are real prayers of David, but it goes beyond David. But there's still real prayers of what David endures. And they were really sung by the people of Israel as they were anticipating, but also longing for the Lord Jesus Christ in their times of distress, in their times of sorrow, in their times of sadness. Calvin, there is not one of the godly who does not daily experience in himself the same thing. According the, to the, according the judgment of the flesh, he thinks he is cast off and forsaken by God. Well, he apprehends by faith the grace of God, which is hidden from the eye of sense and reason. And thus it comes to pass that contrary affections are mingled and interwoven in the prayer of the faithful. James says, if any of you suffer, what does he say? Let him pray. Pray to God. Pray to Christ. And thankfully, we pray on the other side of that greater David already coming. And you can pray by faith and trust in your God. If you feel like God is not here, you know what the worst thing to do is? Not pray. You know what the worst thing to do is? Not 
come to church. That is the worst thing that someone could do. But perhaps in those times of absence, God is teaching us to press in by faith. So we can press in to a God who is faithful and he hears our cries. So that's the prayer in silence. Let's then look secondly at the loud praise and deliverance. God is silent, silent, but God answers. So what is our response? Praise, loud praise, thundering praise. I loved being at the uh, theological exam for Ryan. All the men sang. And it was this thundering, loud, loud boom that went on there. It was excellent. And yeah, man, we need to sing loud. Please sing louder in our church. That would be a wonderful thing. Um, but we need to sing. Praises to our God. We should be the loudest singers there ever was. Because of all that God has done for us. God has changed us. God has given us new life. And we ought to praise him. And he's answered prayers. Brethren, how often, if you're like me, sometimes God answers our prayer and then we don't thank him for that. Isn't that terrible? Thankfully, we have every week to be reminded to come in and sing praises to our God. So in verses 22 and 24, we see the thanksgiving of the individual. Verses 22 through 24. And what does James also say in James 5.13? If any of you are cheerful, let him sing psalms. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing songs and sing songs to God. So when we sing song or hymn 175 at the end of the service, should be the loudest singing we've ever sung in this, uh, in this church. So I'll be measuring the decibels too, by the way. But verses 22 through 24, notice the individual. He praises in the assembly. Again, he goes to church. I will declare your name to my brethren. Before he was scorned, before he was ridiculed, now what's he going to do? I'm going to proclaim God, the name of the Lord. And we see the name of the Lord in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, uh, uh, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. This is all the Old Testament, by the way. But long-suffering, full of goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the name of the Lord. And he hears, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. The place where God's people ought to be the place of the righteous, where they proclaim the name of God. And perhaps the image is what uh, uh, we see here as well. He was outside being scorned, but he goes to the place of sanctuary. But then the church must be a sanctuary for the people of God and must be a sanctuary, not because we do what the world says, but because we do what God asks us to do. And hopefully if we do what God asks us to do, it really is a place of great help and encouragement for the people of God. The church really ought to be a safe haven when we enter in to sing praises. And brethren, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I, when we, ex- what we went through the past two years, I experienced that in our midst how great a safe haven the church truly was, especially when we came in those doors and locked those doors. It was a great safe haven for the people of God. And again, contrast with verses six through eight and all the ridicule that the psalmist endures. But he proclaims the name. And then verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. 
Fear him, all you offspring of Israel. He's declaring who God is and what he has done. And he says in verse 24, the reason is he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He hears and he answers, nor has he hidden his face from me. Isn't that one of the things, God, have you not been far from me? Have you not hidden your face from me? What's he reminded of? He's reminding himself here through praise that God has not hidden his face from him. When he cried to him, he heard. There is this triumphant tone. God has not hidden, but God has heard and delivered. Therefore, I will praise. But then in verses 25 through 29, there's the thanksgiving of the congregation. Brethren, we mourn with those who mourn, right? And we rejoice with those who rejoice. That sure is a tough thing, isn't it? Especially if you're the one mourning, <laughs> you're going through something sorrowful. It's hard sometimes to be happy for the people who have something good in their life. That's why the Bible says mourn with mourn, those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And in this case, we rejoice with the psalmist. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear your name. Again, we've seen the language of vow before in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Again, perhaps it's a free will offering, perhaps rendering some service to God. And the reality is God's faithfulness should stir up faithfulness on the part of the sufferer. Here's what God has done. I will press in further in faith and I'll press in in worship to my God. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. But notice as well what shall happen uh, in the congregation. The congregation joins in praise, but there's going to be some food. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. We're just talking about someone who is wasting away to nothingness. Someone who was being poured out and was formless because he had no food. Now he's filled. Now he's satisfied. Now he has all that he needs. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. And the only way to be satisfied is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's that image in John 6, speaking of Jesus as the bread of life. Feeding upon him. John 4, the living water in which someone will never thirst. The Lord Jesus Christ. In him and him alone, we feast upon him and we shall feast upon him by faith in the Lord's Supper. So, brethren, the Lord's Supper is a good thing for God's people to be present at. Those who eat shall be satisfied and those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Then notice verses 27 and 28 and 29. Notice we see the ends of the earth. Verse 27, all the ends of the world, that's where 295 comes in, shall remember and turn to the Lord in all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The centurion in Mark 15, truly this one was the son of God, a Gentile believing, but all the ends of the world shall hear it. The ends of the earth, not just Israel, but the ends of the earth shall hear the word of the Lord and hear all that he has done shall remember, and they shall turn, and all the families of the nations. Again, even Old Covenant Israel was looking for Gentile inclusion, at least they should have been, that is, coming in. And they certainly we see that in the book of Acts and its fulfillment. But truly, the Lord is king, and it expands outside of Israel. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. 
Isn't that a comforting thought as well when the nations rage and plot a vain thing? God is king. We forget that so often. I forget that so often when I see certain leaders, but I forget that so often. But the earth is the Lord's, is it not? Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over all the nations. He is king. And all shall be prosperous. Verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth, they shall eat and worship. And those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he cannot keep himself alive. Even death or near death should not stop us from praising the Lord. Even as we are, have our eyes beginning to fade and heaven's morning begins to break, what ought we to do? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, dear brethren. Even when we are passing and even though we die, we shall praise God forever. Even though we pass, we shall praise his name forever. Craigie says, though the psalmist had been delivered from death, its nearness was no excuse to cease from worshiping God. Those who are about to die should also bow down in worship before the God of the universe. And it's reversing a lot of language we saw in verse 15. You've brought me to the dust of death. And all those who go down to the dust, they shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive and thankfully the lord jesus christ triumphed over death and he proclaims in his resurrection who he is does he not he proclaims to the dead in his resurrection i didn't say he went down to hell did you catch that that's inaccurate he says by in first peter three or second peter three one of the peters i should just check to make sure but in one of the Peters, it says very, very crystally clear. Is crystally a word? But crystally clear. That's okay. Crystal clear in the Peters. First Peter 3. Yeah. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. First Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit resurrection by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water. By the way, the ark is a type. It's a type of salvation passing through judgment it says that right here there's also an anti-type which now saves us baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward god through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god and angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him but hope you see that made alive by the spirit that's how he preaches who he is and when Jesus says to the chief priests in Mark 14, 62, I am, and you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven or sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's by his resurrection from the dead. He proclaims such things. He has proven to be who he is by his resurrection. He, death could not hold him down. And then verses 30 and 31. 
Again, future proclamation. He shall have a people who are his. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. The goodness of God shall be proclaimed and uh, propagated through preaching that he has done this very thing. What he has done shall be recounted from generation to generation. That's what preaching is. Something handed down. Isn't it? Nothing new. If I say anything novel or new, please run away. That's a hard thing. And uh, in, um, in academia, typically you have to find something new, but I don't want to say anything new. So I don't know that I want to pursue a PhD for that very reason, but maybe one day, but not today. But in any case, we proclaim what God has done. Living, dying, rising again. That which I received, I handed down to you. That Christ suffered, Christ died, Christ was buried and was raised according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's all a certain thing that he has done this. That he has done this. And perhaps that language there in verse 31 is akin to what Jesus says in John 19.30. It is finished. He has done this. So this psalm ends on a very triumphant note, doesn't it? It starts off with silence and absence and crying out to God and pressing in by faith, but it ends on great triumph. And there is a New Testament application to our Lord. Both sections of the psalm are messianic. In Hebrews 2, as he talks about bringing many sons to glory through Christ who came and suffered to make the captain, it says, verse 10, for it was fitting for him, Hebrews 2, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering, that is, Jesus, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I'll put trust in him. And again, here am I and the children of whom God has given me. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. How is it that he triumphs? He triumphs by dying. He triumphs by suffering. He triumphs by rising again. And the implication here is we have a king who identified with us in the incarnation. We have a king who suffered for us on the cross and in the entire incarnation, we have a king who was raised from the dead and received, and the one who is taken up and is glorified, that we who suffer might also be glorified as well. For him, the cross preceded the crown, and for us, dear brethren, suffering precedes glory as well. 
But that doesn't change the fact that Christ is triumphant. And we walk this world, though we suffer, with a triumphant king who is with us every step of the way. Davis says, and clearly, that was the pattern of the gospel events. In face of the darkness of Golgotha, there shines an empty tomb and an occupied throne. The resurrection and ascension are God's answer to the forsaken Messiah. Brethren, we ought to praise. We ought to proclaim. We ought to preach the mysteries and the beauty of what Christ has done. And brethren, in your daily life, when God answers your prayers, you ought to come and praise him for all that he has done. Godfrey says the real and inescapable problems of life in this fallen world should lead us to prayer. Prayer should lead us to remembering and meditation on the promises of God, both those fulfilled in the past and those that we trust will be fulfilled in the future. Remembering the promises of God will help us to praise him as we ought. And as we praise him, we can continue to face with grace and faith the problems that come daily into our lives. Praise him for all the temporal deliverances, brethren. Praise him most importantly for the eternal deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus who suffered and had the wrath of God poured out upon him. It was Jesus who triumphed by dying and rising again, by ascending into heaven, by sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father, and one who will come again to judge the living and the dead he is king he is lord he is the one we ought to praise well let us pray thank you O god that you are with us in our darkest hours thank you O god that you are with us when we despair and are down cast and heavy laden thank you that we have such a king in christ as he who is the one who went through so much suffering on our behalf went through unique suffering in a lot of ways on our behalf, especially as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. Thank you for all that he has done for us. Thank you for his triumph. Thank you that he does bring many sons to glory. Thank you that he passes through death that we might have life. Thank you for him. Thank you for his finished work. And thank you, O oh God, that we walk this world knowing our king has triumphed and reigns on high. Thank you that he has overcome the world and we shall overcome the world in him. And we even now, O oh God, know that we need your strength to help us even in this as we walk this world, as we are being sanctified, as we are making our way to that celestial city. There are so many conundrums, so many perplexing things that plague us and trouble us in this fallen world. But thank you that your promises remain true. Christ is King. Christ is Messiah. Christ is triumphant. And Christ is reigning at your right hand even now. And thank you that you give us your Lord's Supper as a visible reminder, as a visible means of grace for us to partake of you. And we pray, oh God, you bless it. Pray there would be encouragement to us. And we pray that you be honored and glorified in everything. Please save sinners. Please strengthen your people. In all things, we pray that you be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.